various Christian circles in North America right now, the air is abuzz with all sorts of talk about this new Nicolas Cage left behind flick. And this film is in large part uh, fear driven. It's motivated by fear and it's meant to freak people out and scare the heck out of people about what a supposed end time apocalyptic event triggered by the return of Jesus will be like. Um, we often refer to this as the rapture. But the whole premise of this rapture theology um, is that upon Jesus' return, uh, the faithful, the believers, will uh, be taken up by Jesus and raptured into heaven with Him where they'll be forever, and the unfaithful, the rebellious, uh, will remain on earth to suffer all sorts of trials and tribulations and uh, the like. The problem is that um, this is purported to be found in Scripture, but it's just not. Uh, in fact, the Bible does not teach that there will be a rapture. Just as well, the Bible does not teach uh, that you should be afraid of being left behind. The Bible doesn't teach these things. And so um, the people who are sort of driving this uh, dispensational machine, this rapture machine, have built um, a faulty theology off of a number of verses of Scripture. I want to consider at least um, three of those, what I would call core verses that um, the rapture folks uh, use today. The first one is Matthew uh, 24, uh, 37 to 41. And here Jesus is saying, this is what it's going to be like at the return of the Son of Man. And to do this, he appeals to an analogy of Noah and his family. And he says something to the effect of, uh, this is what it was like in the days of Noah. People were, were rebelling. People were eating and drinking and uh, being married and given in marriage. And then the flood came and a bunch of people were swept away and taken away. And Noah and his family was saved. Noah and his family was spared. In essence, Noah and his family was left behind. You see, uh, there, of all the talk about being taken in this narrative, there's no talk of directional being taken. Uh, no one is taken up, for instance. Um, and the left behind folks have actually taken this story and flipped it right on its head to make it say the opposite and mean the opposite of what it in fact says and means. In the story, Noah and his family are those who are spared, those who are saved, those who are left behind. And those who are taken, the rebellious, are taken by the flood. And so at the coming of the Son of Man, you actually want to be like Noah and his family. You want to be left behind. This is a good thing. Uh, so the Bible doesn't teach that you need to be afraid of being left behind. Quite the contrary. Another popular passage for um, the uh, raptured toting folks is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. And um, Paul is writing this letter uh, to the Thessala Thessaloniki Christians, or Thessalonica, however you'd prefer to say that. And they have, it seems, been dealing with some sort of persecution. And um, they are also uh, scared because they maybe thought the resurrection was going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so Paul is writing to allay some of their fears. And in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, he uh, uses this imagery, this language and imagery of we will meet Jesus in the clouds uh, when he returns. And the rapture folks have uh, suggested that this means that we will go out to meet Jesus in the clouds and that at that point he will usher us back into heaven again where we'll live with him forever and everybody else is just sort of left here. But what Paul is actually doing in 1 Thessalonians 4 is he's mixing uh, metaphors. He's really good at mixing metaphors. 
Um, here he's drawing on a mosaic, a Danielic, and an imperial sort of um, set of metaphors. Uh, for instance, uh, from the mosaic uh, set of metaphors, he's um, thinking about Moses coming down from the mountain and the trumpet blowing, and it's sort of this royal language and imagery. And he's saying at the return of Jesus, that's what it's going to be like for him. Um, he'll come down, there'll be these trumpets blowing. We also find this language and imagery in 1 Corinthians 15. But then he also appeals to uh, Daniel 7, which would have been great for the Christians in Thess Thessaloniki, um, who had been suffering. Uh, in Daniel 7, you have the vindication of um, the righteous, the vindication of those who have suffering, and the language and imagery of being um, uh, seated on the clouds with God. And so Paul uses that here uh, to sort of comfort and um, assuage the fears of the believers that they will go out uh, and meet Jesus in the clouds. And then he also uses this imperial language and imagery. Uh, when in ancient um, times an emperor approached a city, uh, there was this whole sort of um, experience that happened. Uh, the town welcoming committee would open up the town gates and uh, they would go out and greet the emperor whose chariots is sort of kicking up um, uh, clouds of dust and they would pay homage to him and um, then they would usher him back into the city as uh, someone was in a tower blowing on the trumpet and people were cleaning the streets, getting the shops off the streets, making way for the emperor. And if the town was in trouble, the emperor would save them. Uh, if the town was uh, being waylaid, he would set things to right. The emperor would bring about justice. And Paul is saying that this is what it's going to be like at the return of Jesus. We will usher him, we will go out to meet him in the clouds and then usher him back into the new city where he has rule and dominion and sets things to rights and brings about justice. That's what the passage is talking about. Revelation also sort of appeals to that, that um, uh, Jesus will usher in the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new heavens, and the new earth. And so the rapture folks have completely distorted that. We also have another passage in Revelation that they appeal to. It's Revelation 4, 1 through 2, where um, the author, we'll call him John at this point, is on the island of Patmos and he has this vision and there's the rub right there. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But he has this vision. And in the vision, God says, come up here. Come right now. And the rapture folks have interpreted this to be a sort of um, a, a rapture experience for John. Actually, that's rather uh, problematic to read the passage that way. What we have to consider first and foremost is the genre. This is a vision. There are all sorts of visions throughout uh, the text of Revelation. And um, to, to distort the genres, to distort the meaning, um, which is to distort the appropriation and the implications. And so we need to keep in mind that John is having a revelation, uh, uh, um, a vision here. And he's not been physically beamed up. He's not been turned into some sort of cosmic spaceman. Um, he's just having a vision. And he's explaining this vision in his writing. And so you get the genre right. And that's the first step to getting the meaning of uh, that passage right. Uh, in, John, or in Revelation 1.10, we know that John is island, on the island of Patmos. Um, and that's where he stays probably for most of the duration of his writing of that text. And so um, I submit these three 
three uh, foundational verses for you uh, so that you can have some knowledge of them and begin looking into them. There are a number of great resources that um, I would encourage you to access as more and more people begin talking about this movie. For instance, uh, Barbara Rossing's The Rapture Exposed really uh, gets to the heart of the eco-theological implications of believing um, in a rapture. Uh, ben Witherington's The Problem with Evangelical Theology in short order and short form really knocks the legs out from under the supposed history of this whole um, uh, rapture theology, uh, which is a very young theology. And N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope um, also in short form sort of dismantles this whole rapture theology. And so I would encourage you to access some of those uh, works and just to be uh, ready and willing to talk with folks who are uh, discussing this movie.